So 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. They may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper, proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the, fi the final greeting. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Father God, we just thank you for your uh, holy word this morning. And I just pray for Nate as he comes up to uh, speak truth to us, that you would prepare our hearts uh, for what he has in store for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Diane. That was awesome, Diane. I will share. She was a little nervous. You did fantastic. That was awesome. Um, well, church family, we get to this morning close out the book of First Peter, and it has been a journey. And at the onset of our study in First Peter, we, we, we made a bold declaration. We really wanted this, the study of this book to be an opportunity for us as a church to, um, to grow in a discipline or a habit of memorizing the word of God. And I'll confess, like, this is a, a discipline that I need to grow in to, to really, like, 
man, dwell on, memorize. Like I will, like again, as confession, I'm like, I don't need to memorize it. I've got this book right here. Um, but it has been so good for me personally to be soaking in and memorizing this. And I will also maybe let you off the hook. I do feel like we could have done a better job keeping this in front of us as we walk through the book of First Peter. But our memory verse that we had set out at the beginning and said, this is what we want our church to be memorizing over these past handful of weeks is First Peter 1, 13 through 16, which really, we didn't just like close our eyes and point at a verse. These handful of verses really encompasses everything Peter has been aiming at and striving to communicate to a group of churches in Asia Minor that is facing increasing opposition. Now, it's not opposition where they're being beaten for their faith or being murdered or martyred yet for their faith, but rather they're becoming more and more social outcasts. They're becoming left out and things that they used to be invited to and a part of, they no longer can participate in because they're following Jesus. There's a lot of cultural, verbal, and, and social oppression taking place on the church. And so, um, and so Peter writes to them, and our verse that we've been working on is, prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct, for it is written, Peter's not just pulling this out of thin air, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And this really has been the driving force in what this book is about, that the believers in the churches in Asia Minor need to be ready for suffering. They need to have a clear mind and a clear head. They need to keep their focus on Jesus and his coming kingdom and the hope that will be brought at the second advent. We're getting ready for the advent season where we celebrate the coming of Christ. All throughout this book, we have seen that our hope is in the second advent, the second coming of Christ, and that we still have work to do as obedient children. We're not supposed to live like we used to, used to live, but rather we're to be holy in all of our conduct. And, and, and really the purpose behind us memorizing this verse and behind us picking this verse and really what we're going to see as this chapter closes out or this book closes out this morning is Peter's desire is to see the church strengthened and established. That as they go through suffering, as they face more and more oppression, more and more hardship, more and more complications for following Jesus, he wants to see them view suffering as an opportunity to be strengthened and established. That suffering isn't something we shrink back from or run away from, but rather it is an opportunity for God to do some things in us and for God to show off to the world around us. And so kind of like we did last week, again, we've got a lot of text and a lot of ground to cover this morning. And so we're going to walk through everything Bob and Diane just read, but we're just going to kind of pull out the highlights. And then I did this last week, and I hope it blessed you and encouraged you and, um, and prompted you to maybe dig a little bit deeper. But on our app, so if you, go to your, if you go to the app store, you can search Redemption Loveland. If you don't have our app, you can download it. I'm sure there's a QR code around here somewhere also. Um, 
but on our app, I've put together a 15-page document with my thoughts and observations, commentary, research, so you can see what people way smarter than me had to say about all of the kind of the nitty-gritty of the verses that just for time's sake, we're not going to necessarily get to dive into deeply this week. There's a 15-page document along with some some small group questions or questions for family discipleship or just you and your journal throughout the week. Um, but this morning, we're going we're gonna to pull out the highlights, really striving to ask, to answer the question rather, how can the church be strengthened and established through suffering? How is it that we can go through hard times or the churches in Asia Minor can go through really hard times where they feel alone, they feel isolated, they feel unimportant and unwanted, and yet that can be a good thing? As a matter of fact, that can be God's will for his people. How can that be? And we're going to strive to answer that. And the first thing we're going to see in our first chunk of verses is one of the ways we are strengthened and established through Suffering And one of the ways the church, churches in Asia are going to be strengthened is by choosing to rejoice rather than run from their responsibilities. They're going to rejoice in suffering and choose not to run from their responsibilities. And so let's just quickly walk through. And again, as we walk through this, I've got a lot of things bolded and underlined on the screen. These are things that if you go download that resource or check it out, like we might not hit them all just again for time's sake, but these were things that really just kind of made an impact in me and my study, in my time in the word over the last week. And so let's pick up verse 12. We've already heard it read. He starts out, he kind of transitions away. We've been talking about general suffering, that the church is going to generally just kind of face hard times. And as he continues kind of on, but is shifting towards the end of the book, he says, beloved. And we have to kind of pause right there because that's, that's too good to just skip past. I love that this word shows up in our text, and if you drive on 5th Street right here, 6th Street, which one is this? 6th Street. 6th Street. This word now shows up on our building. It's painted on the mural that so many people helped pull together and compile, and Eric Holman was kind of the visionary behind it, um, that this word beloved, how awesome. This is a church. This is a group of people that are struggling with, I don't know if I can persevere in my faith that the cultural oppression and the temptation to shrink back is so great that I just don't know if I can do it to the point where Peter feels compelled to write a letter because the situation is so serious. And in the midst of him encouraging them to stand firm and not give up and see God glorified through suffering, here in the midst of all of their hardship and struggle, he reminds them of who they are. They're beloved. They are loved by Christ. Maybe this morning you're coming in in a season of suffering and life has been hard and you need to hear, like the churches in Asia needed to hear, you are beloved. Jesus loves you. He loves you in the midst of suffering. 
your love is never, his love for you should never be in doubt. He says, do not be surprised. And then he starts to talk about the, the trials that they're going to go through and really reframing them, not as suffering for suffering's sake, but rather this is an opportunity. You are being tested as you go through suffering. And, and the language here is very much the idea of a refiner's fire that the church and Christians are going to go through. Followers of Jesus are going to suffer to purify, to get rid of sin, to get rid of things that the world has brought on us or the devil has brought on us and the things that we have eagerly and willfully chosen. And Jesus will allow us to go through suffering, to burn those things away. And we talked about this last week, to return us to the image that he created us in, to make us that imago day. And this is gonna take a lifetime. He says, don't be surprised when you go through tests. I'm purposed in that. As a matter of fact, he says, you should rejoice, verse 13, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I just want to pause. And that word insofar, like really struck me this week. Because here's what I think Peter is saying in verse 13. As much as you rejoice, as you celebrate and you're glad and you're praising and you're glorifying through suffering, it's that much and I believe even more that you are going to rejoice when his glory is revealed at that second advent when Jesus comes back, when we see him face to face. And so in the here and now, when we are suffering, as we rejoice and say, God, you are good. Yes, it is hard, but I am hopeful in you. In as much as we rejoice in the hard times, it just all the more enhances our ability to rejoice in the future. That's what Peter is driving at. And so we have to choose to rejoice. He continues on in verses 14 and 15 and to, to kind of, again, bring us some context as to what kind of suffering is the church facing. He says, if you're insulted, Again, it has not escalated to the point of physical suffering yet. They're not being beaten for their faith yet, but rather this is a verbal assault on the church, on the community of God. He says, as you are insulted, know that you are being blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then he's going to give them here kind of um, some, some responsibilities that they need to make sure they don't run away from. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. Now, I love how he gives us four kind of categories here. The first two, blatant sin, we've got commandments for those. Don't be a murderer, don't be a thief. The third one, evildoer, that's kind of an all-encompassing, those who celebrate wickedness, those who enjoy evil, and just kind of camp out in doing the wrong thing. So it's a, it's a kind of catch-all word. And then this last one to me is almost funny. Meddler. Literally, this word is don't be annoying. It is, it is as a follower of Jesus, own your responsibility to not enter into situations that you don't belong in and become a nuisance. The other day, I was at lunch with a buddy of mine, and we were having a pretty like heart-to-heart conversation and like we were trying to actually like get some work done and push forward into some family stuff and it was it was really really good and then all of a sudden the lady behind me turns around and starts talking about how awesome Teslas are just just straight up we were in a conversation and she's like hey I need to tell you guys how great Teslas are and all of the blank confused faces that's the appropriate face that you should have it made no sense I was like 
we're in the middle of something. Why are you inserting yourself in our conversation? And I don't care if you work for Tesla, they're great. That's fantastic. But don't put it in the middle of my lunch conversation with a guy. That's, that she was meddling in our conversation. And it was super annoying. And it called a halt to everything we were working on in that moment. Here, Peter is saying, don't suffer because you're annoying. Don't suffer because you lack self-control. Don't suffer because you put yourself in other people's business, but rather own your responsibility. As a follower of Christ, make sure you are suffering for the right reasons. And he goes on to say, if you suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of suffering. Now, quickly, let's remember, who's the author of this letter? This is Peter. If you're familiar with the story of Peter, does he know the pain of being ashamed of Christ? Does he know the devastation that comes with denying Jesus and choosing to live and look like the world? He, I, I read this just personally, and I hear a very personal plea from Pastor Peter here. Don't do what I've done. He's felt the, the, the disappointment of being ashamed of Christ and been absolutely brokenhearted from rather than glorifying God, being ashamed. And so he writes these churches and says, you have a responsibility to not be ashamed when you suffer and go through hard things, but rather glorify God. And then we get to verse 17, and he says, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter here is talking about the church. And he's saying, we have a responsibility to rejoice through suffering because this is God working in and through us and purifying us and refining us and making us into the image that he desires for us to be. And a part of that is it becomes then an example for those outside of the household that God is at work through suffering to turn his bride, the church, into who he desires for her to be. But then that also should be a bit of a warning to those who are living in active rebellion against the king of kings. That's why he says, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? If God allows his people to go through hard times, what does that mean for those who live in active rebellion? This should break our hearts a little bit. It should also give us hope in suffering that, Jesus, you are using these hard times to turn us into who you want us to be, but God, you're also going to give us a platform to share the hope we have that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus. And then he pulls a quote from Proverbs, Proverbs to say that if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, the idea here of being scarcely saved does not mean that in Peter's mind or in the author in Proverbs' mind that like, man, Jesus' death on the cross almost didn't work. That's not at all what Peter is saying. But rather, it took everything for us to be saved. Jesus had, God had to die to rescue you from your sin. It took everything to save us what will become for those who say, that's awesome, but I reject it, and I will live my own way, and I will trust in my own work. 
there's, this is a, the, the more I sat with these last the couple of verses, 17 and 18, like the scarier it is for those who are not in Christ. And then kind of as a summary verse in verse 19, if you highlight, if you underline, um, I would highlight this whole verse because it kind of just summarizes beautifully everything we've been reading. He says, let those who suffer according to God's will. Again, why do we rejoice in suffering? How are we strengthened and established through suffering? Well, one, we need to know it's God's will. God is at work in the hard times. He says, entrust their souls. We have a responsibility to say, even though this is hard, I'm gonna lay my soul bare before you because you are a faithful creator. We're gonna trust God even when it's really hard hard. And then it's not like we just say, cool, God's got it. I'm going to go sit on the couch, eat some popcorn and relax. He says, no, while doing good, we still have a responsibility. Again, let's remember our memory verse. As obedient children, do not live according to the passions of your former ignorance. We still need to do good work. And so as we are striving to be strengthened and established. What are some things that the churches in Asia Minor can do? They can rejoice in the test of suffering. They have to make that decision. They can rejoice with a kingdom focus, with their eyes set on the second coming of Christ. They can be responsible and suffer well, not suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler, but rather suffer for Christ for doing the right things and being obedient children. And they can choose to responsibly say, God, you've got this. I'm gonna trust you. So we're asking the question, moving on. How can we be strengthened and established? We can rejoice and choose not to run from our responsibilities. We also can embrace God's requirements and his recommendations for how we are to operate within the context of community, because we're going to hit now a, a pretty significant, what feels like a significant shift and kind of an out of nowhere, all of a sudden he starts talking about leaders. But really to me, this feels quite logical. If there is all of this external pressure uh, among the people of God, doesn't it make sense that eventually it would trickle in and start to infiltrate the community of God and how we interact, or how the churches in Asia Minor interact with each other, and who is responsible for leading through that, guiding through that, navigating, caring, protecting, calling out sin, it's the leaders. And quite possibly, as the, the persecution continues to escalate, they're going to be the first ones to kind of maybe face some of the tougher persecutions that might come that way. So what Peter is going to do is he's going to continue on, but really start to address how we act in the context of the community of God, in the household of faith, within the church. So he starts out addressing the elders, the pastors, the leaders. He says, I exhort you elders, as a fellow elder, he reminds them that he knows the, the, the joy of being a pastor, of being an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He has seen firsthand Jesus be betrayed, Jesus be arrested, Jesus be be whipped and beaten and, and some of those things. And while Peter denies and abandons and probably doesn't see Jesus literally die on the cross, he's close enough. He's seen him be persecuted by the religious leaders. He's seen Jesus suffer in a number of ways to where he can say, I was a witness. I saw what Christ went through. And he's going to now give some 
of the requirements for leaders, for the elders of the churches in Asia Minor. And so I read this as a report card going, Nate, is this how you strive to lead? Greg, Jeff, the other pastors here, is this how we lead? For you guys, for all of us this morning, though, what I want it to serve as is one, as we walk through, we're going to see, like, I want you to ask this of us. Is this who we are? Is this what you see in the leadership here at Redemption? And then because I've just been long en- doing this long enough to know that as much as I would love, and I've said this before, for everybody in this room to never have to go to another church again, and we could all just be here and grow and mature and love Loveland well, I know the Lord is going to call some of us to different places as the Lord leads you, maybe away from redemption, come to passages like this and say, as I search for a church family and a community to belong to, this is what the leadership should look like. It's not just the guy that makes you laugh. It's not just the guy that you feel like, man, I can hang out and have a cup of coffee with him. Or like, this is what God's requirement is for elders. This is how we're supposed to lead. So he says, shepherd the flock. Shepherding is a messy job. Shepherding is taking an animal that doesn't want to go to a place and leading them there because they're going to be protected and provided for. Shepherding is hard. And that's the illustration, that's the analogy that Peter here uses and the Bible uses over and over again is that pastors are shepherds. And so we're to shepherd the flock of God. That means sometimes we might tell you things you don't agree with. But our hope is to lead you and guide you where God would want you to go for your protection and provision. But also I love, and I've actually found a ton of comfort in that next part, shepherd the flock of God. This is God's church. It's not Nate's. It's not Greg's. It's not Jeff's. It's God's. Man, I can rest easy knowing that this is God's flock. Yes, we're called to shepherd, but he's ultimately responsible. It says that is among you, exercising oversight. Friday night, my, my wife, I sent her out of town for her birthday weekend. She's, uh, she's away um, for just kind of a girl's trip. And Friday night, because I have an abundance of wisdom, I decided to take uh, my three youngest children and then a friend from our neighborhood. We went downtown here to the tree lighting. Um, and there was like, it felt like thousands of people. And I've got four, or three, three of my own kids and then one kid that we just borrowed um, coming downtown with us. And the whole time, I'm like excited to like see the tree get lit, even though we still have a holiday to go, like Thanksgiving still, like let's, let's hold off. Friday we can be all about Christmas, but can we give Thanksgiving its props? Um, but I wanted to go, it felt like fun. There's all these booths and vendors, and I saw a handful of families from the church, and it was a lot of fun. But man, I enjoyed going downtown not at all, because the whole time I'm down there, all I'm doing, and if you've, if you've got more than one kid, you know what I'm about to say. All I was doing was one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. I was just counting to four over and over. I'm watching the crowds of people, and as we're walking downtown, and I realize this place is 
bonkers. I gathered all of the kids, and I said, okay, if we get separated, you're going to go over here, and you're going to stand there, and you're going to wait for me to come find you. And then at several points, I'd grab my daughter's hoodie and pull her back as we started to get separated, and I'd rally my kids and put my arms around them as the crowd just kind of dictated where we were going. What I was doing Friday night was exercising oversight. I was watching over and bringing them back and protecting them. I got to enjoy the tree lighting, not at all, but I got to oversee my kids, and it gave me a great story for right now. Um, But that's the picture that I see when I read this, that a shepherd, an elder's job is to look around, to bring back, to oversee and watch over the flock. And it says, not under compulsion. A pastor shouldn't come in going, man, I've got to do this. I wish I'd have gone to school for something else. Like, I feel stuck. If, if an elder feels stuck but isn't willingly shepherding and exercising oversight, that church is headed towards really some unhealthy places. And he says, as God would have you, again, this is a calling. And then he says, but not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Like, pastors, elders should not oversee or shepherd for money. You shouldn't get into ministry for the money. First off, that's just not wise. It doesn't pay that great. Secondly, the, the, the really the, the, the hope or the protection for elders here is don't get into this and then start like cooking the books, siphoning money off, twisting people's arms to give. That's not why, but rather you should be willing to do this eagerly. He says, don't be domineering. Don't bulldoze over people. Don't steamroll. Don't use your authority as a reason to make people do what you want them to. But he says, rather, remember, be an example for the flock. That as elders, we need to know people are watching. Like if I pulled up tomorrow with a personal driver in a limo and got out and was like, hey, I'm here to preach, and I was in like some fancy suit, be like, what the heck is going, how did he afford, what? Like, if you see me speaking harshly to my wife, or being rude and disrespectful to my kids, or see me flip out on a server at a restaurant, like, we're examples. But I think also in this, though, because of the culture you and I live in, something I would just maybe lay before us, is I have to remember I'm an example I guess maybe for, for, for us, the question is, do you follow where we lead? Do you see us as an example? Or you just come and you're like, oh, okay, that was cool. I underlined it and thought about it for a second. And then I'm going to go back to doing whatever I want. We have such a distrust of authority, such a, such a, a, a propensity to just dismiss and do whatever we want But the elders of a church are to be an example, which also means the flock is supposed to follow. And ultimately, this is why we do what we do. It says when the chief shepherd appears, again, this is Jesus' church. All of us are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd, appears. He says, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's some cool things attached to that that I'm not going to get into. Go read the document. Um, Verse 5, he continues on now to say, those who are younger, be subject to the elders. Here's who I think the younger is that he's talking about. It's not just young and immature in the faith. It's, It's those young guys who feel like, you guys remember what it was like to be like in your late teens, early 20s, and you were burdened with you knew everything? 
Isn't it nice to be out of that? That was overwhelming. Sorry to those of you who are in that age range. Um, you'll, you'll join us eventually. Um, those guys who are like, I don't need to be invested in. I figured it all out. As the church in Asia, churches in Asia are facing increasing opposition, my guess is there's some guys who are going, we could do this better. We don't need the elders to teach us. We got the solution. And Peter here is saying, no, no, no. You need to come under your authority. You young guys who think you've got the swagger and you've got it all figured it out, you still need to be invested in. You still need to be discipled. So come under those elders. But then he's going to continue now to all of us. He says, verse, uh, the rest of verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. For God appro- opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's going to repeat it in verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the, at the right time he may exalt you. That's three times he's now brought to the forefront the requirement, the recommendation that as a church community we embrace humility. That we come in not seeking to serve ourselves and our desires, but rather, how can we lift others up? How can we, like we all got dressed this morning and put on clothes, how can we make a conscious decision to put on humility? All of us. To say, I'm not going to come into the gathering saying, this music better be what I want it to be. And Nate better do, say what I want him to say. And this, the coffee better be the kind of coffee I want it to be. But rather humbly saying, who can I serve and lift up? Because all of us come under the mighty hand of God. And then verse 7, he says, casting all of your anxieties on him. This is another way to call us to humility to recommend that we, we trust God, avoid pride. Pride would say, God, you can't take what's going on. And as I'm suffering, you can't take this. And humility is saying, I'm going to lay everything that's stressing me out, every fear, every worry, every stress at the feet of Jesus. And then at the end of verse 7, this was another phrase that just really made me just worshipful this week because he cares for you. I wonder if the churches in a season of suffering have started to question, man, Jesus, do you really care? If you really cared, you wouldn't let it be difficult. And so Peter here reminds them, man, Jesus cares for you. And as you go through suffering as a believer, he's refining you and making you into who he wants you to be. But we still have some requirements. We still have some things that we're supposed to do. So he tells us again, be sober-minded. Be watchful, be alert, be ready. He brings in the spiritual warfare element with the fact that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, that we have an adversary that wants to get us isolated and alone, wants to separate us from the community. And as we suffer, then we, we can become easier, easily tempted to deny our faith and say, man, we'll just give in to the world. Peter calls us to resist is resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here, I think, is Peter's recommendation to the churches. You're going through a hard time. Lift your eyes off your circumstances and know that you're not in this alone, that other churches are going through hard things. Some of us in this room, maybe you're going through a really hard thing, 
a season of suffering and you need to take your eyes off of your circumstances and know, man, like there are churches and people being persecuted all over. That in like in North Korea, it is super dangerous to gather light. Like this is not possible there. And we come here and we complain about the music or the coffee or the preaching or, man, they didn't open up kids ministry and the blah, blah, whatever. And like in North Korea, there's, you know, a little less than half, half a million, if my memory's serving correctly, believers who are wondering if that knock on the door is somebody going to put them in a labor camp just because they love Jesus. And yet they gather. That should fuel our faith. Here he's saying, man, that same kind of suffering, that will strengthen your faith. It will allow you to resist the enemy, to continue to gather. And so here's what I see for the churches to be strengthened and established. We need to embrace the requirements for community, both leaders and followers. Embrace the requirement for living humbly, that this isn't about any of us. It's about all of us coming together to glorify the name of Christ. And then the recommendation that we are encouraged through a kingdom focus, that we not just look at ourselves, but rather we see, God, what are you doing around the world? And lastly, how are we strengthened and established through suffering? By a repetition from the word and real relationships, not just Facebook friends, real relationships with one another. And as we close out this book, Verses 10 and 11, that'd be another one I would highlight, I would underline, I would circle, because it really does summarize everything Peter has been writing. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, even as you're going through suffering, remember, God is gracious. That his suffering here and now enhances our worship both here and in the future, that God is gracious to refine us and purify us. He says he's called you to his eternal glory. Don't lose your kingdom focus. This is what he's been saying all throughout the letter. And it says he himself will restore, will confirm, will strengthen and establish you. I tried this week to figure out how to like parse and unpack these. They're so intertwined that as we are restored to a right relationship with Christ, we are confirmed in our gospel identity. We are strengthened in our belief in who we are and what God has called us to and established to stand firm. You really can't parse these out. They are so intertwined. And Peter wants to remind and repeat to the churches in Asia once again, God is at work through suffering, and he ultimately is all-powerful. That's why the doxology here in verse 11 is to him be the dominion forever and ever. He is flexing for God here in this moment, the strength and power of God. And then we're going to get some relationships in verses 12 and 13. That it's Silvanus, a, a faithful brother, that it's by him, most likely he's the one probably delivering this letter around, um, that I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring. He wants to exhort the church to stand firm in the face of suffering and declare the gospel in all of its glory, that this, and you have to ask, what is the this that he's asking, that he's writing about, is the true grace of God. I think the this is the whole letter we've spent several weeks studying. Peter is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and as it comes to the end, he says, it is by this letter that you see the true grace of God, and so stand firm in what's contained in this letter. 
We're not just supposed to hear the word and then go do whatever we want. Rather, we're to stand firm on the word of God. As we suffer, return to the word of God. He says, she who is at Babylon is likewise chosen, sends you greeting. That's the church at Rome. I can, again, in that document, it kind of unpacks what that means and how we get there. Um, and then he says, so does Mark, my son. This is probably Mark, the guy who wrote the book of Mark, studying the life of Jesus. Um, and then he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And you know, I like, real quick, the kiss of love. So, like, it's easy to, like, go, oh, that'd be weird or whatever. Um, Here's what struck me, though, as I didn't want to move too quickly past this. The principle here, culturally, when you were in a safe place where you knew you were among family and friends, the way that you signified that was a kiss on the cheek. Again, we live in a culture that is so distrusting and keep everybody at an arm's length that, for me, the principle here is, How do we create a place where you know this is safe and I'm wanted here? And so I would love for Redemption Church to find our own kiss of love, to find some way to signify this is a place where you are welcomed, wanted, and safe. To not just come in and go out and just kind of sit and then grab a cup of coffee and sprint on. But rather here, he's calling them to hospitality. He's calling them to real community where you know this is a place where you can grow and belong. And I just love if there was a way that we could figure out how do we as Redemption Church do this? Kissing feels a little yucky, but let's find something. Maybe it's a bro hug. Maybe it's a fist bump. I don't know. Something to show. This is a place where you are welcomed, wanted, and safe. And then as the church here is facing, again, escalating opposition, that the final words he would wish over them, that he would speak over them, is peace in Christ, a shalom, a ceasing from anything tense, but to be able to kind of exhale, that that would be what he would, he would speak over them. And so how are we strengthened and established? You pursue the word of God repeatedly, especially during seasons of suffering. That he would come back again to what he has said over and over should should be a little bit of an illumination for us that, man, when we're struggling, we should come back to the word. We need to come back to the word. Come back to what we know is true. And then pursue Christian community and real relationships. Because notice again, Peter kind of draws out here how he needed Silvanus, he needed Mark, he needed the church in Rome. He's writing to encourage the church to bind together through tough seasons. And so we need each other, Peter needed others. We can't do this alone. You cannot stand firm on your own. And so I wanna just highlight two ways as a church right now that we can be strengthened and established, that we practically can kind of come together. The, The first one, you saw it on your way in, is that how can I help serving board? So I've got one right here. First off, like how cool are these? Like this is so nifty. This is so much better than if I had done anything. I'm so thankful for a plurality of gifts because I could never do anything that looked even half this nice. Um, but, and I just realized I, I picked up, just ran up to set up the ladies brunch. So apparently I'm gonna set up the ladies brunch. Woohoo! Um, I'll put that one back. Um, 
But on your way out, one of the ways that we could come together is we could serve together. And so there's lots of different little gift tags with all sorts of needs that would strengthen and establish our church, would be a coming together and a handful of them that as you pick them, you never know, you might end up showing up here and serving alongside somebody and forming real relationships and community as you shovel snow or set up for a brunch or clean up after we set up all the Christmas stuff. Like there's all sorts of opportunities, but as we serve together, we are strengthened and established together. The other way that we can we can really be strengthened and established as a church is by how we give, by what we do with our resources. And so I just want to like, again, I, I want to thank those of you who have partnered in worship through giving. Like we don't pass plates. We don't um, take up an offering. It is a, an act of worship. But when we bind together and we invest together in what God is doing here at Redemption Church, we are strengthened together. We, we are then in this together. You care about what's happening here. And we're, we've got some projects and things that we're going to be making you guys aware of. One of them that I just kind of very briefly, and I'm not going to go too in-depth because I get ignorant real, real fast. But these speakers, I call them the field goal posts. Um, they have served us super well. Nat and his team and, and lots of people have like almost done magic with what these have done for the better part of eight years. It's incredible. But we really are at a time where it's time to invest in, um, in some better speakers and equipment to, to really allow us to create a place where it's welcoming and it's, 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 it creates an, an environment conducive to worship. And so to, to singing and declaring and making much of Jesus. And so we've got some more information that'll be coming that way. But, but again, all of this is really just a way, it's a practical way that we can say, we're going to pursue community together. We're going to care about what's happening here because we want to be a church that is strengthened and established through suffering. So we're going to choose to rejoice when we go through hard times. We're not going to run from our responsibilities. We're going to embrace what God's word says about who we are and how we're to live. And we're going to pursue repeatedly the word of God and real relationships. And sometimes that's going to come at a cost. That's going to come as a sacrifice. But all of it is meant to glorify God and to, to return us, to get us to be who God has called us to. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you use hard things to first and foremost be glorified, but also to purify your people, to help us become who you are calling us to be. So God, I pray for the people in this room who are suffering today, that who are going through a hard season. I pray that they would set their hope on you. God, for those in this room who maybe are not followers, who have not yet said that they are sons or daughters of the King, 
God, I pray that by your spirit today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day where they would feel and experience your Holy Spirit revealing how the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, suffered a very real death for their sin, for my sin. Jesus, would today be the day where someone stops running from you and they feel you, the chief shepherd, bring them in. Jesus, would all of us leave here this morning with a renewed hope and a perspective on how we are to walk through life, how we are to be strengthened, how we are to be established, God, what we are to focus on, because the time is short. So Lord, would you encourage us now as we come and prepare to come to the table and remember your broken body and your shed blood. Would this be a, a holy moment? Would it be transforming to our souls and bring a smile to your face? It's in your name I pray.